0: First reading is John chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. And then six days before the Passover, J- Jesus came to Beth- uh, Bethany, where Lazarus, who has been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. The Mary took a pound of very costly oil of sp- spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil." But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always." Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. First, I'd like to thank Mark for stepping up and reading for us. also want to thank Dylan. Uh, I appreciate Dylan's persistence. He's like, hey man, you got your, your sermon picked up. I want to pick my verses. And he does that right away. And it's good because it keeps me honest. Usually I do this the night before. Everything I just line up the night before, I dedicate all of my Saturday. But this is new for me and I appreciate it. So big thank you to Dylan and big thank you to Mark. And of course, thank you to Brother Gary for our prayer. So we've all heard a sermon particularly on this event in the Bible before. And I've taught a few times on it, but I like to look at it from a slightly different angle. It's not teaching something new. It's actually zeroing in on something that isn't present elsewhere, but is very important. And what does that mean? John specifically identifies the problem as starting with Judas Iscariot. If you look in the other Gospel accounts, you will find that Judas is not mentioned. In fact, you will find that multiple disciples are giving Mary a very hard time for her choice. But why would John single out Judas then? And we're gonna take a look at that today. So the perils of false compassion. So we all know what compassion is, and what we'll do today is we'll look at the character of Judas Iscariot, particularly in this event, We will look at what compassion is and compare it to passion. Um, And then we will tie it all together, and we will show how God is compassionate and how God ultimately expects us to be compassionate. Now, you might ask also, why the negative aspect of it? Why false compassion? We often talk about compassion as a positive thing. We have compassion for someone or on someone because we feel sorry for them and we want to do something about it. Well, false compassion is interesting. If you ever want to manipulate someone into doing something for you, regardless of the case, just tug on their heartstrings. Give them a sad story. Maybe they're an animal lover. Give them a sad story of animal abuse. You can get them to do a lot of things for you. When you look at what Judas is doing here before the disciples, remember the remarks for John? John clearly says he didn't care about the poor. And it's true, Judas didn't care about the poor, Judas had ulterior motives. But he used the poor as an excuse to cover for some evil thing he was already doing. He's the one that started the dissension that day. A time that they create a meal. This is the final week of Jesus' ministry. They create a meal. They host the Lord. The Lord has just resurrected Lazarus. People are coming because they know of Jesus. And they want to see Lazarus. They want to believe it for themselves. And Judas is causing trouble. So we're going to take a look at that today. So, false compassion. Give me a second here to kind of get organized here. Is it up? Oh, it's off. Ha-ha. Got to take my own advice, right, Kyle? <laughs> Whoops. The buttons have switched again. Down is now forward. Okay, our scripture reading, John chapter 12. So I mentioned this is Jesus' end of his public ministry. We're given a time frame. We're given a time frame six days before the Passover. This is the Passover in which Jesus will die. Jesus will go to the cross. If you flip over, if you flip back to John chapter 11, look at verse 54 and verse 55. There's a gap of time between those two verses. Jesus has been doing a lot. Like uh, probably the biggest and heaviest lifting of his ministry happens in between these two verses when you look. And, and it's wonderful things. Uh, look what we have here. Jesus starts his final journey towards Jerusalem. He starts off in Samaria. Remember, he talks to the Samaritan woman, right? Heads towards Galilee, and he heals 10 lepers. We find that in Luke 17. He then shares the two parables on prayers. One is the prayers of the importunate widow, and the other is what we famously understand as the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the Pharisee and the publican comparing what good prayer is to bad prayer. And then of course and we talked a little bit this morning in Dennis's lesson uh, in the Bible study for those who were present, he delivered his most profound remarks on the very teaching concerning divorce. And what was that if anyone can remember? I tell you that from the beginning, he says from the beginning it has not been this way, the Pharisees had questioned Jesus. Why then did Moses give a writ or a certificate of divorce. And Jesus fires back, he says, it's because of the hardness of your hearts. But his most profound teaching on divorce comes at the end of his ministry. And carrying on, an interesting event. When you look at history, Jesus receives little children to himself. He says, permit them to come to me. And Jewish tradition maintains that one of the children pushed forward and pressed upon Jesus is the child of Peter. It's very interesting. I'm not throwing that in there to just confound you or anything. I'm throwing it in there to show you just how much God's ministry applies to just everyone, not just adults. He reminds the Pharisees, permit the children to come to me. Because, again, often when Jesus would preach on subjects it would cause controversy. We just talked about divorce. The Pharisees said, no, 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 we can divorce a woman for any reason we wanted. If we found that she has no more favor in her eye, we could toss her out and find someone new. Every time Jesus would preach, some aspect of controversy was present, and that's because they were mishandling the Word of God. They had twisted the Word of God so much so that problems occurred. And tying that back to the event with Judas concerning the vial of perfume or the vial of expensive nard. Pure nard, as it's recorded for us. Again, controversy. Because he said, let's take the money and give it to the poor. In Jesus' final week of ministry, or sorry, final portion of his ministry, he spoke to the rich young ruler. Remember, the rich young ruler had said, Lord, I have done everything according to the law. And Jesus acknowledges it. And he says, okay, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. We understand that the poor young ruler could not do that. He couldn't get over himself. That richness was the barrier preventing him from full service unto God. And of course, Christ gave the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And what else is our Lord doing? Well, At this time, he's delivered the third prophecy concerning his death and resurrection, which is where we're at by the time we start our scripture reading this day. But he did something too. He rebuked the ambition of James and John, the brothers, the sons of Zebedee. Remember, they had come forward and they said, Lord, may we ask of you? And he says, what do you want? The mother says, permit my sons to sit with you. To be seated with you on the right and on the left in heaven. And the sons ask the same question. Yes, we've been good people. Permit us to do so. And of course, Jesus has to correct their expectations. And then finally, Christ will heal the blind beggar Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. It's a very powerful miracle. And then the last aspect that we have recorded, again, between these two verses, the Lord visits Zacchaeus. He gives the parable of the pounds or the talents. We know it as the parable of the talents. And then he finally goes up to Jerusalem. And that's sort of the context of where we are for our reading. We know what's going on. We know Lazarus has died. We know Jesus had wept. He had wept for his friend. He had wept for the people present. And he raises Lazarus. And now Lazarus is seated at this wonderful dinner. This is literally a dinner given to a king. So the perspective, often when we come here, people will look at what Mary's doing because it is one of the greatest acts of love you will see in Scripture. She gives absolutely everything. Uh, 300 denarii, right? That is pretty much a year's worth of labor for us today. If you were to work it out, it's 300 days of labor. We don't work 300 days in a year normally. We get a lot of holiday. We get a lot of time off. But it's a full year of labor, and she goes and pours it out, uses her hair on his feet, and anoints his head with oil. But she's remembered for eternity for this. But Judas is remembered for eternity for what he did in response to it. And so I mentioned we have these gospel accounts. We were read today the gospel account in John chapter 12. If you'd like to follow along, turn over to Matthew 26, and turn over to Mark 14, And you'll see what I mean by what's recorded and what's not recorded. John specifically calls out Judas. Now you might wonder why. We can speculate all sorts of reasons. But one thing I think we can all agree upon when we look at it, John's love for Jesus is so much that he simply hurt when Judas did this. He simply hurt that for a man being so close to the Lord for so long... Remember, John has a keen understanding of Judas that most of the other disciples do not. You can get this first hint, if you will, if you look at John chapter 6, near the end of the chapter, John records that Jesus is fully aware that there's a traitor in the ranks, right? Jesus calls one of the disciples a devil. This is early on in the ministry of the disciples alongside Jesus. But if you look in John's Gospel, he specifically and only mentions Judas. He sort of gives cover to his brothers. There's no, this is not a war of who's this or who's that. But John is clearly hurt over what Judas did. He wants us, in the future sense, to realize that, hey, there was a problem that day. This is the core of that problem. And if you look at Matthew and Mark's accounts, They say the disciples are indignant towards each other, and they start arguing. Jesus finally has to put his foot down. Now, why draw attention to this? There's no mistake that John simply, well, you know, I don't have to worry about what Peter did or what James did. And there's simply no forgetting of Matthew and Mark when they write their recollection. But there is one thing important. You see, when John gives us Judas, he shows us what not to do because it's something done out of wrong motives. It's something done out of evil motive. A lack of compassion. Uh, When you read this story, if you don't know it's Judas, is Mary seriously doing something wrong? No, she's not. But John is so hurt by this event. If you look at the account in Matthew and Mark, The very next description, Judas uses this opportunity to betray the Lord. Judas is disgusted with Jesus' remark here. But what else is going on here? Why is Judas in charge of the treasury? Why is he in charge of the money bag that the disciples would carry along with them in their daily ministry? You have to think about the very character of Judas and what his skills are. Don't think of him as a cunning man or a man that has betrayed ultimately the Lord. Jesus sees value in him. Uh, ask yourself this question. Would Jesus just simply turn over the money bag to whoever was just willing? No. Would he turn over to the money bag to someone who's incompetent or maybe lack the skills to handle money? Also no. But remember, Jesus knows the hearts of every man, woman, and child. You see, Judas has some skill with money. We don't know what it is. We're not fully told. But he clearly has some skill with money. And if you think of when the father says, I desire no man to be destroyed, or, right, that all may be saved, you have to think of what the son is doing in this instance. He trusts Judas. He knows he's going to be betrayed by him, but he trusts him. Why would he trust him if he's going to get betrayed by him? because he's trying to get him to realize that he does not have to do the evil deed. You see, we get to look back in history, and we can look at history and the event in scripture for us with perfect lenses. We can have all sorts of commentary and teaching and life lessons surrounding it. But at the time this is happening, it's real time. Jesus wants to save everyone. That is his mission. He came to save the world if they believe in Him. That includes Judas, if Judas would believe in Him. Judas didn't believe in Him. That's why he ultimately failed Him. That's why he betrayed Him. That's why he was disgusted when Jesus had to put His foot down that he sought the next step. He didn't know what the next step was. He did not plot to kill Jesus before this moment, if that's kind of where you're, you're looking to see where we're at. He thought, okay, this, this is it. This is, this is crazy. Right? Judas had ulterior motives. What they were, we do know he wanted an earthly king. We know he was part of that persuasion, if you will. But who does he instead go to when he goes to betray Jesus? He goes to the temple treasury. Who is involved in the temple treasury? People that handle money. People that understand basic accounting, if you will. People that would be responsible for at their very best at applying God's standard. God had several standards for the money concerning the temple. What it was allowed to be spent on. What was considered acceptable money. What was considered pure and clean money, if you will. And Judas runs there. You know why he runs there? Because of his skill set. He knows how to handle money. Those are his friends. He's got accountant friends, if you will. I'm using modern speech to kind of show the characteristic of this man. He runs to there, and he barters with them. At some level, he knows they want to get Jesus. For Judas, his idea of getting Jesus was to have him be the earthly king he wanted. Here's another way to consider it. If you look all around the Western world, particularly here in America, we'll see tons of denominations But if you look very closely at how they describe Jesus, they don't all describe Jesus the same way. I'll give you an example. The Catholics, and if you were to compare them to Jehovah's Witnesses, describe Jesus as from God, but serving two different roles before God. The Jehovah's Witnesses will try to tell you that Jesus is a created being and is essentially the Archangel. The Roman Catholics have extended their belief, right, They know Jesus is the Son of God. They know Jesus can give forgiveness. But again, my point is, is they don't see Jesus the same way. It's no different back then. A lot of people treated Jesus differently based on their perceptions, their understandings, even their personal desires. So as we carry on here, Jesus remarks to Judas, right? He remarks to Judas and he says, look, the poor is always with you. That is not our Lord saying, I don't care about helping the poor. We just saw the last week or so or two weeks or three weeks of Jesus' ministry. What is he doing? He's helping the poor. He's helping the blind receive their sight. He's helping the poor woman at the well. He's helping the widow who's left pretty much destitute, right? What What does Jesus do, if you can recall? She has nobody left in her family and she's carrying her son to his grave. Jesus comes and performs a miracle, right? Jesus clearly cares about the poor. But what he tells Judas is something Judas would have known through all of his religious education. The poor will always be with you. This was given by Moses first when he gave the law. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Look at verses 7 and 8 here. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns, in your land in which the Lord God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. And carrying on, look at verses 10 and 11. You shall generously give to him. You, your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all of your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and poor in your land. Any self-respecting Jew would have known this. In the time of Christ, this is partly why John is so offended by this. Remember, he makes the distinction. Judas doesn't care about the poor, right? Mark, Matthew, they make no such distinction. They show the disciples bumbling over each other. They have an argument, and they're indignant. They take sides. Now, let's tie it back to the premise of our lesson, false compassion. Why are they arguing with each other? It's clear that Judas has some sway. He is able to influence people at some level, Why would they be indignant with each other? If it was a clear-cut case, they would all feel like John. They would all record it the same way John did. But they didn't. They had a difference of opinion. Jesus had to set his foot down and say, leave her alone. She's doing something remarkable. Jesus is literally trying to tell them, look, she's preparing me for my burial. And they're fighting over it. But this is something Moses had handed down. This is something they would have known through the generations. You cannot grieve the poor. You cannot ignore the poor. But you cannot help the poor so much that you think you can solve it. Now where am I going with that? World hunger. We can't solve it. We have plenty of food. We can lift restrictions on farmers. We can help feed people. But we will never solve world hunger. But it doesn't mean we can't care. You see, these circumstances exist in our lives, so that we can show we do care. I'll give you an example. You've often heard of capitalism versus communism, right? You ever wonder why capitalism wins out? It's not necessarily because it's better. Because under communism, you can't give anything. It's taken from you. In capitalism, you can still give. You see a poor lame beggar on the street. You can give in capitalism. You cannot in communism. There's nothing to give. It's not yours to begin with. You can't extend it along. You can try and help them. Maybe you can comfort them a little bit, but you certainly cannot give to them. Just a comparison, some food for thought kind of a thing. So I mentioned we would compare this idea of passion versus compassion. Passion, I'm going to pick on Kyle for a second because he gave a wonderful lesson this morning. Kyle has a passion for singing. Kyle has a passion for songs and in service to the Lord. You can see it in his presentations. You can see it in how he preaches the sermon. And he does very well with it. Passion itself is a dominant or powerful emotion towards something. Maybe it's an activity, an idea, a cause, or a subject. We often will have passion, right? It's easy because we can relate to ourselves. Compassion, however, is towards someone else. It's a deep awareness, it's a sympathy, it's pity even towards another person's situation. Let's take it back a step and put it in biblical terms. When Jesus went to the cross, that was an act of passion. Not compassion, but passion. His goal was to do the will of the Father. That is exactly why he was born, to go to the cross to die to save mankind. That was his passion, fulfilling that mission. But what is Jesus' compassion then? Look at all of his miracles. Look at how he helped people then during his ministry. And look at how he helps people today well after the fact, thousands of years later. You see, Jesus has compassion on everyone that would seek and follow him. Because his compassion is the Lord's compassion. We can classify the interactions of compassion and passion together by describing certain characteristics of it. For example, what is the nature of each emotion? I think I wrote this twice and I don't know why. I think I made a mistake. But the nature of each emotion is where it spawns from, right? Passion starts in the self, right, and pursues something for the self. Compassion starts with an external event And you come before it, and then you decide, wait, I can relate to this, I can understand it, I can offer help, and I want to relieve it. What about the focus of the emotion? Well, if it starts in the self, it's an inward focus. It's towards your personal or self-desires. Maybe you have an interest in boating or fishing. I know some people like to hunt here, for example, or crafts or anything of the sort. Music, right? passion you have a passion it starts inside you you focus internally and you go and get what you think you need to get to fulfill your passion but compassion itself is completely outward think of it this way passion is of the self compassion is for other people it's towards other people's feelings and needs I think during the after-sermon meeting today, uh, Brother David had kind of pointed out how we ought to just not sit around and wait, but if we see someone that needs help, if we see someone that could use encouragement, he's literally asking us to be compassionate. And compassionate is a key quality before God. In fact, it's an expected quality, and it has to be present in every believer. If you find yourself lacking in compassion, maybe you're not thinking of how to relate to external events, especially involving other people. I'll give you an example from Scripture. When, if, if we're in unison and we're one body, if somebody is sad, we all ought to be sad, or at least understand and recognize it, right? I'll give you a clear example. We lost Sean last year. We're compassionate towards every aspect of that. We're compassionate towards Kristen and her children, his friends, his parents, He left a good mark on us all, right? That would be compassion. It would be response towards that. Maybe Kristen needs help one day. It would be compassionate of us to be in touch, to understand what that help is, and wish to fix it. But passion, on the other hand, would be entirely different. Passion would be like, okay, well, I want to go and do this for this, and I want to do this in the church. It's not necessarily the same. They're related. Sometimes inseparable, but they're definitely not the same. But what are the outcomes of each kind? Well, I mentioned earlier, passion is about achieving your goals or your personal interests. But compassion, the outcomes are a little different. Because success with compassion is whether you help and understand others to alleviate either a short-term problem or a long-term problem, or at least you're working towards resolving a long-term problem. So the outcome would be for yourself, for passion, and it would be towards other people for compassion. What are the downsides of each? Well, passion is interesting because it can lead to forms of obsession, compulsion, narcissism. It's often driven by pride and ego. Now again, just because it's a downside or a drawback does not mean it's inherently evil, doesn't mean you can't even do it. We have to have passion. In fact, we'd be dull and boring people if we had no passions. And life itself would be boring, right? Remember, Jesus was passionate to go to the cross, right? And compassion, well, because you think often about other people, it can lead to interesting outcomes. It can lead to emo- emotional burnout. Maybe you just can't give anymore. Maybe you're tapped out. Maybe you you feel empty because you care so much for other people. You can tend to neglect yourself even. If you care more about other people, you tend to neglect yourself. And the opposite is true for passion. If you care more and more about yourself, you can neglect other people. And you can find this all over through Scripture, right? You can find this in the differences between good parenting and bad parenting in Scripture the kings of israel there are those who cared about their children and raised them well and there are those who simply didn't care about their children and we have some pretty interesting stories about them but it also means anxiety is present is present sorry not present but present anxiety can happen to both but it is more impactful as a drawback from a compassionate side if you're tapped out but you still want to help you're in an anxious situation are you not And that, when you look at compassion itself, comes from humility. So, passion with pride and ego, compassion with humility, but with humility can be exhaustion, right? I'll give you an example from scripture. When Jesus looked and wept over Jerusalem, what did he say? He had lamented about how this is the city that kills the prophets, right? How he wanted to take them under his wing like a hen with her brood of chickens, right? And care for them. Jesus often had compassion. The Father in heaven is the most compassionate being we will ever know. Jesus, absolutely no different. At some level, it is exhausting. When we read of the Lord, I believe in, and forgive me, I can't remember where it is in Scripture, but when we read of the Lord, he says, look, the foxes have their holes, the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head he's exhausted. But his mission wasn't to solve that problem. His mission wasn't even to tell us that, hey, we can help him to solve that problem. Remember, who's throwing the dinner when Judas raises a stink? Mary and Martha. They're in Bethany, right? Lazarus is seated at the table with Jesus, his friend, and the associated behaviors. When it comes to passion and you pursue your interests fervently, and I mentioned earlier, you can put yourself above others. But if you were to look at compassion, the associated behavior is always offering something. Hey, do you need help? Hey, would you like help with that? Hey, I notice you struggling in this area. Are you okay? You see, if you don't ask your brother, sister, your mother, your father, your siblings, your children, if you don't ask what's bothering them, you're not showing them compassion. If you're not showing them compassion, how do you truly relate to them? Now, it doesn't mean you have to do this all the time, because some people have a lot more disposition, if you will, towards passion than they do compassion. But it's how you handle compassion is key, thus the whole point of our lesson today. You see, when it came to Judas Iscariot, John tells us he didn't care about the poor. And it's clear, he didn't care about the poor. What was one of the jobs of the treasury money? To help the poor. If he's stealing from that, how on earth could he help the poor? Even if he stole from it and maybe did a good deed later, what would it matter? It cancels each other out. In fact, he couldn't do enough good deeds to overcome the fact that he's stealing from the treasury. You see, it's one thing to rob your brother or your sister or a stranger. But when you rob from the treasury of God, you're literally robbing from God. And so when you consider what the associated behaviors are, you have to understand what it is you want to do to help. And you also have to understand what it is you can do to help. Sometimes when it comes to compassion, you can recognize That person needs help, but I don't know what to do. That's an okay limit. Not everyone can help at the same rate. Uh, Consider it this way could everyone perform miracles in the time of Christ? No. And when Jesus left, who was performing the miracles? It was the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the selfish servant would say, It was me. And we read of an instance where the disciple said, Master, why couldn't we kick this out, right? The Lord said these are the kinds of demons that require prayer, right? A greater reliance on God. Another example, if you consider in the scriptures, would be Matthew chapter 7. We often will talk about it or hear about it together. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name do or perform many miracles? You see, if they truly could help and understand the people they were aiming to help, they would realize that under compassion, you don't do it because you want the gratitude. You literally do it because you want to see the pain, the suffering, the oppression end. It's selfless, in other words. Hence, you put other people above yourself. So, false compassion, an emotional condition that leads from bad motives, and it progresses towards terrible outcomes. Let's relate this in the modern sense, and let's not talk about ourselves, per se, but let's talk about stuff that affects us. If you've ever looked at the situation in the Middle East recently, in the last 30 or 40 years, right? Oftentimes, when it's time to go to war, they will say, this dictator or this brutal leader is starving the children, they steal the aid for themselves, right? And they somehow use that as a justification for war. But the war is fought and the troops come home. But are the children better off? Not in a single instance. And you have to wonder why. Their goal is not to address the compassionate problem. No, often it's retaliation. Often there's political gain, even economical gain from it. But they don't address the aspect that they sell the conflict on. I'm not here to politically persuade or say this is right or that is wrong. I'm here to point out that false compassion can lead you to do all sorts of different things you would have never done otherwise. And that's what happened that day with Judas and the disciples. You see, Judas had wicked motives. He had false compassion, but he had enough influence with the disciples that they fought with each other. We don't know the details, but we are given the word indignant. That's not a clean word. It's a very powerful word when you look it up. But they are indignant with each other because they have a difference of opinion handling this situation. Mary is remembered for all eternity for anointing the head of Jesus. It is one of the greatest acts of love you will read in Scripture that is not Jesus himself, but it is somebody doing something for our Lord. Comparable acts would be Joseph of Arimathea asking to take the body of Christ down and to prepare him for burial. These acts of love are remembered because this is the kind of love and compassion that God expects his children to have. Turn over your Bible to the 86th Psalm. I believe it's Psalm 86. Let me double check here. The 86th Psalm. Yep, it is the 86th Psalm. In the book of Psalms, this is the only time David has writing appear at this stage. In other words, in the third book of the Psalms, when you break them all up. But Psalm 86 literally talks multiple times about the compassion that God has for everyone. Not just David himself, but for everyone. Uh, David will say, Lord, your mercies are never ceasing. Lord, you are good and gracious to me. Those are all on the basis of compassion. Let's relate it to David for a second there. When you or somebody you know prays to God or when you read someone like David say to God, your mercies are everlasting, he's literally thanking God for the compassion that he has towards his plight. David, before God, to us, David is a giant. Before God, we understand the air and the lineage. But David is just another person, relatively insignificant compared to God, but not so much so that God cannot have compassion for us. You see, the same compassion that he gave David is the same we get every day. And David doesn't say, look, hey, God, I did all this for you. No, he's pointing out, look, you saved me. How can I not give thanks and joy to you? And so on the basis of real compassion and false compassion, the point of this lesson was to not maybe teach something new, but to point out that you have to handle compassion like other emotions. You have to weigh it out correctly. You can choose to do terrible things with it and not even realize it. You see, the disciples that argued a little bit with Judas, they thought they were right until Jesus had to put his foot down. Now, notice through Scripture, Jesus doesn't have to address the issue again for the other disciples. It simply doesn't matter. But for Judas, it didn't stop there. You see, Judas had an evil motive, and he sought the next step in escalation. That next step in escalation was betraying the Lord. All of the disciples, when they speak about it, or it is written about them if they were interviewed for someone like Luke or so on and so forth, this is the turning point. This is when Judas doubles down and sells himself completely to the cause of Satan and fully betrays Christ. And so, when it comes to compassion in your life, please be compassionate. I'm not calling anyone out here. I have a lot to learn myself about compassion. But when it comes to compassion, make sure the motives are correct. Make sure that when you see somebody hurting, you truly want to fix it and help them. Maybe you can't fix it, but it's okay to sit on the journey with them. Sometimes, you know, it's it's been said, I've been told, especially by my sister, but sometimes it's been said women don't want a man to solve the problem, they just want a man to hear of it. That's an act of compassion. Maybe you can't fix it. Or, or maybe you can fix it and it's the best idea ever. But part of compassion is relating to what they need. And if they say, hey, I just need someone to listen, it will help. So when you think of passion versus compassion, you think of the event that was read for us today in John chapter 12. Know this, that with right compassion, you're fulfilling the golden rule. To love others as yourself and to love God wholly. But if you act on false compassion, you get all sorts of weird outcomes, even dangerous outcomes. False compassion has led us to war many times. I'm not even talking about in in our country. Look at false compassion in Europe or Asia, South Asia, even Africa, and it's led to very violent outcomes. False compassion stems from a lie and unpure motives. But true compassion of the Lord comes from Him. And if we emulate that, we do well. And that wraps up our lesson today on false compassion. If you're not a Christian and you would like to understand what it means to be a Christian, if you're not a Christian and you would like to understand, hey, I have a compassionate side and I want to work on it more. I want to be compassionate for my fellow man. You can come forward. Why can you come forward? The same act of compassion that God saw upon us from the very beginning to have an eternal plan to rescue us is the same that extends this very day. You can be baptized and you can come serve the Lord. You can let his compassion overflow upon you if you come forward together as we stand and as we sing.